former FBI Assistant Director, Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Canada is part of what we call the five eyes. A threat in Canada is a threat to the United States. All threats have become global, and the FBI really needs to try to be everywhere. The majority of my work is done on classified systems that I can't take home. I have to work on those in secure facilities. Seems like you just can't succeed in your mission without those key partners. Someone could be victimizing you sitting in the house next door to you or sitting in you know another continent around the world this episode we visit our neighbors to the north and sit down with the head of fbi operations in canada as we learn more about the fbi's presence in over 60 nations throughout the world and brian botick legal attache canada will tell us about the incredible partnership between the fbi and Canadian authorities. Brian, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, to meet with us today. Our listeners are eager to learn about what life is like for FBI personnel assigned outside the United States, and you're just the person to help us learn that. Well, thank you for having me today, Frank. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure, and you have the honor of being our first legal attache on the podcast that's actually uh, working abroad. We've had an episode last season where we delved into the, an overview of how the legal attache program works in the FBI. We talked to a senior headquarters official, but now we get to talk to someone who uh, represents where the rubber meets the road. Now you are assigned to the United States Embassy in? Ottawa. Ottawa, Canada, our neighbor to the north. And with all of the programs in the FBI r- represented in our neighbor, uh, it's got to be a busy place. Let me um, have our listeners learn more about your journey into the FBI before we begin our substantive discussion. Tell me how you got to the FBI and where you've been assigned since joining. Sure, Frank. I was Fourth generation law enforcement, uh, two great grandfathers. My grandfather were all New York City police officers. And my father was in the Air Force during Vietnam. And I was born on an Air Force base up in Plattsburgh, New York, that no longer exists. And then he spent the rest of his career as a pilot uh, in the Coast Guard doing search and rescue and drugs. So I moved around quite a bit as a, uh, as a military child. Interestingly enough, I've moved around twice as much uh, in the Bureau I went to uh, school at Auburn University and was a police officer at the University Police Department uh, while I worked my way through school. And then when I graduated, I worked for the City of Auburn Police Department, left for the neighboring state, became a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and worked uh, violent crimes and white-collar crimes down in uh, coastal rural Georgia and uh, metropolitan Savannah. And then in 1998, I had the opportunity to join the FBI and... It's been a long career with, uh, now I just hit my 23-year anniversary uh, last month. 
uh, started in Washington field office on the extraterritorial squad, which investigated the kidnapping and murders of U.S. citizens uh, overseas. It was an interesting time to be on that squad, only because the television show The X-Files was out. So when I told people I was on the extraterritorial squad, uh, people either thought I was joking and meaning extraterrestrial, or then it also lent to some credence to a lot of people who thought we actually investigated aliens. But that sent me around the world. I hit 17 countries in three years. And then in August of 2001, I switched over to the Washington Field Office's Joint Terrorism Task Force, which uh, was a month before the 9-11 attack and then the subsequent anthrax attacks. And then we had the Clayton Lee Wagner top 10 fugitive male anthrax letters out of uh, Northern Virginia. And then that rolled over into the D.C. sniper shootings. So it was an extraordinarily uh, busy time early in my career. I then transferred down to Quantico, where I became an instructor in the prestigious FBI National Academy, as well as the New Agents Training, where I taught interview interrogation. Left that assignment to become a supervisor out in our San Francisco division in the middle of Silicon Valley, uh, running cybercrimes out of our San Jose resident agency. Uh, after two years of doing that, I returned back to the Washington area, worked in our counterterrorism division as a detail lead of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, working on international terrorism matters, promoted out to Oklahoma City, where I was the assistant special agent in charge of national security programs. Did that for a few years and came back to headquarters, where I ran the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force for our cyber division and for uh, the rest of the U.S. government. It was a national cyber center before being promoted to be the special agent in charge of the Buffalo Division of the FBI, which covered uh, western New York. From there, I started my overseas journey and went to become the legal attache over in London from 2015 to 2018, where we saw a spate of terrorist attacks in 2017 and then the chemical nerve agent attack in 2018 out in Salisbury. Based on a little bit of that experience, I was promoted back to headquarters. I served as the assistant director of the Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate, covering all the nuclear, chemical, biological, radiological issues, weapons, and problems that uh, the Bureau is engaged in. And then I uh, was given the opportunity to go serve as a legal attache again up in uh, Ottawa, and that's where I currently sit. You know, I uh, for you, it might just be what you just did might be a, just another routine um, recitation of your FBI career. But but I for everyone else listening and and I get to listen to this um, on every episode, the 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 deep, the deep experience across so many of the FBI's programs is really impressive. And it's and it's it's really kind of a theme. And when, as we talk to more senior folks like yourself. Uh, and, and it just actually makes me glad that someone of your experience is sitting where you are right now representing the United States, as you have previously, um, in an FBI assignment. Let's, let's continue kind of on that personal realm, which is, you know, what's it like living in Canada and being that FBI guy in Canada? Do you have family there? What's different? Um, what, are you, what are you observing? What's life like there? Sure. For our, for our overseas posts, most of them are accompanied posts where you bring your family. There are obviously some in some of the more dangerous countries where uh, agents and other employees will go and be assigned without their family. I was fortunate to bring my family uh, to both London and up in Canada. And it's really interesting living in 
another country that was so close to the United States because one of the one of the challenges living in London was you miss a lot of you miss a lot of weddings, you miss a lot of funerals uh, because you're so far away, and it does take a uh, there is a personal sacrifice that you have to make uh, being overseas. So we were very excited uh, to be in Canada, close to the U.S., so that we would miss less of those. And then, of course, uh, the COVID crisis happened, and the border's been closed for really uh, the majority of my time up in Canada, which has made it very difficult. We, we might as well have been living uh, on another continent at times because our access for the family to the United States uh, was quite limited. Indeed. Um, and, and many of our listeners may be hearing for the first time and, and really processing that the FBI has folks assigned throughout the world and is not just that domestic security agency that operates only inside the United States. In, in a real nutshell, Brian, tell us what the LEGAT program is like and why we even have personnel in places like Canada or far more high-risk assignments that you referred to. Yeah, the most prevalent question that I get from people is, I thought the CIA was overseas. What's the FBI doing overseas? And the truth is the CIA is overseas, uh, but the FBI is as well. Uh, we are a dual-hatted agency where we are both the domestic security uh, agency of the United States as well as a law enforcement agency. The CIA is just an intelligence organization. I say just, but they, they don't have a law enforcement role. So overseas, when our foreign partners need assistance or domestically when U.S. agencies need assistance overseas, as well as supporting FBI cases that span the globe. There's really, uh, I, I refer to the, the globe as really ageographic, especially in the, in the cyber world uh, where, you know, someone could be victimizing you sitting in the house next door to you or sitting in, you know, another continent around the world. So to be able to carry out the FBI's mission of keeping Americans safe, we have to be all around the world because uh, we have to be able to respond to incidents and, and be able to coordinate with our foreign partners quickly and, and readily. Uh, so being there is, is just as important as any other, you know, any other uh, domestic assignment. Yeah, truly, I, I, when it comes particularly to what the FBI does for a living, all crime, all threats have become global and the FBI really needs to try to be everywhere. Tell us about the FBI's presence in Canada in particular. Can you share with us, for example, the number of personnel or the number of satellite offices you might have in Canada? Our presence in Canada is unique because the U.S. really shares three international borders, uh, and two of those are with Canada, uh, including our border along Alaska and Canada, and then the, the traditional northern border. So it's 5,500-something 5, square, you know, or miles of, of border. And that is makes it really interesting for us uh, because I have to cover a very large uh, territory. So we have our main offices in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada, and that's where most of their national organizations are headquartered, similar to Washington, D.C. for the United States. But the financial hub of Canada is really Toronto, so I have agents assigned in Toronto, and then I have a sub-office out on the West Coast uh, in Vancouver. Our Vancouver office is staffed by one support personnel and one assistant, special, uh, assistant legal attache. In Toronto, I have a pair of assistant legal attaches and support. And then in Ottawa, I have a deputy legal attache who supports me uh, along with five other uh, assistant legal attaches. We call them ALATs and support staff. 
and an intelligence cadre that sits up there with me. This is a great time to break and have me tell you about two products I'm a big fan of. Let's talk about Audible. I just completed a couple of really long road trips. One was for pleasure, a trip to the Grand Canyon. The other was to help a family member move out of state. I'm talking about seemingly endless hours in the car and overnight at a hotel and getting up and doing it all again the next day. And it's on trips like that when an Audible membership can be a lifesaver. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more like original entertainment from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. As an Audible member, you get one credit every month good for any title in our entire premium selection. That means the latest bestseller, the buzziest new release, the hottest celebrity memoir, or that bucket list title you've been meaning to pick up. Hey, maybe that's my book, The FBI Way. Those titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. You also get full access to the popular Plus catalog. It's filled with thousands and thousands of of audio titles, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts like this, including ad-free versions of your favorite shows and exclusive series, all included with your membership, so you can download and stream all you want, no credits needed. It's everything you love to listen to, all in one app. Audible is your playlist for life, and new members can always try Audible for 30 days on us. Visit audible.com slash bureau, that's B-U-R-E-A-U, or text bureau to 500-500. Audible, your playlist for life. If you've read my book, The FBI Way, you know there have been times in my career when I had issues with sleep. Let's talk about sleep and specifically Helix Sleep. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix quiz, and I was matched with the model and mattress that was best for me. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take this quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020, and by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com slash bureau, that's B-U-R-E-A-U, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep 
is never far away. And Helix Now is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash bureau. Now let's get back to our special guest. Right. And, and so your business card and the, the title on your office door doesn't say FBI agent. It says legal attache. Tell us where that fits into the context of the United States Embassy. That's where your offices are and, and, and the U.S. consulates, of course, in other locations. Why don't you take us inside the United States Embassy in Ottawa? Walk us through the halls. What, what are we going to see? Who's, who else is there? If the FBI is there, who else is there? What's the structure and, and chain of command? How does that work? Sure. I'll demystify the term legal attache uh, just a little bit because it, it's confusing at times to people. Uh, the legal attache is just the cover term for the FBI overseas Back in 1941, before the CIA existed and the FBI was sending agents uh, around the world, one was going to be assigned down in Bogota and needed to be undercover and not say, I'm here as a representative of the Department of Justice. So the other titles of individuals in the embassies include the political attache, the economic attache, and I think there was no legal attache, and the, and the ambassador was kind enough to designate that uh, title upon him. So we have kept that title uh, for over 75 years now. So when you hear legal attache, that just really is the term for FBI uh, overseas. In the embassy, there are a variety of different law enforcement agencies, depending on which country you're in. But Canada, we have a large presence of Homeland Security Investigations, CBP, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. The Internal Revenue Service uh, is up there, Drug Enforcement Administration. It's a, it's a very big U.S. law enforcement presence up there, just again because of the proximity to the United States. It, it requires uh, a lot of coordination back and forth because we have a border that is uh, very porous and uh, a threat in Canada is a threat to the United States. Right. It, it, is, it is our backyard or we're their backyard, depending on how you want to look at it. And just the sheer number of uh, business transactions and, and travel that occur, I think, would, would make you one of the busiest legal attaches the FBI has. Give us a sense of that. What, what kind of, what's the sheer volume of, of investigative leads, requests you get, both from FBI offices asking you to uh, conduct business on their behalf in Canada and vice versa? perhaps the Canadians asking you for help with something in the United States. Do you have a sense for how, how active uh, your office really is? Yeah, the volume is, is incredible. Uh, just merely the FBI to Canada requests uh, consume uh, probably 50% of my day, the amount of work that the FBI is doing and then needing help uh, with our Canadian counterparts. So we do a lot of coordinating that. Then the 17,000 other law enforcement agencies in the United States that may have a case that has some type of Canadian nexus, a, a subject, a witness, or uh, a victim that may reside in Canada. And those victims 
oftentimes are the victims of cybercrime. You know, we, we catch a cyber criminal in, in the United States and you cull through the, the data on their computer and you find victims all around the world. So trying to identify victims of, of U.S.-based crimes that may be in Canada and then doing that for local law enforcement agencies that have cases that move up there, as well as all the Canadian agencies with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, and all the variety of different agencies uh, in Canada that have cases that somehow have a nexus to the United States. That's that's a really a majority of our day is just making sure that we can get the services that either one of the countries needs uh, to be able to successfully resolve their cases. And in terms of those investigative programs that you touch across the board, is there a rank order, so to speak, in terms of the activity level and and lead requests and investigative requests you get? Is it is it mostly national security? Is it drugs? Is it all of the above? Do you, is there some certain trend or pattern you see? Interestingly, the work that I do in Canada mirrors the FBI's uh, priorities as well. Uh, the FBI's number one priority is to prevent uh, terrorist attacks from happening. So the bulk of the work that I do in Canada is terrorism-related, uh, sharing information back and forth with our Canadian counterparts. Uh, again, when I was in London, if you had somebody who was a, a bad actor, uh, it's not they, they can't just drive to the United States. There was always, you know, some lag time that it would take for them to take a flight and you'd have the ability to track that. But the ability to just cross the U.S. border, again, makes that a threat in Canada of terrorism could clearly just cross that border and then it's a threat in the United States. So counterterrorism is, is the bulk of our work. Our second is uh, counterintelligence, you know, making sure that uh, the malign foreign influence uh, that happens in the United States uh, can happen just across the border as well, too. So working very closely with our intelligence counterparts. Cyber, again, as it becomes very ageographic and the ability to victimize somebody uh, from anywhere in the world makes it really uh, important that we, we stay on top of that, especially with the recent uh, ransomware attacks that we've seen all around the world. Those are when they're impacting U.S. companies or impacting uh, Canadian companies as well, and also impacting trade. So when uh, when you have companies that get shut down in the United States that deliver goods and services to Canada, that impacts uh, the Canadians as well. And then the whole entire host of uh, criminal programs that the FBI works. You know, we don't have to really worry about color of law violations. I'm not so worried about uh, the police. Uh, and their their interactions with the public in Canada, but financial crimes and violent crimes, um, they really cross that border uh, as frequently as uh, as they cross the you know state borders you know in the in the United States. Yeah, I I mean even as you speak, I'm I'm thinking back to my own career and and the invaluable relationships uh, between our agents and the Canadians and my own personal experience with both RCMP and CSIS, uh, their security service in, in virtually every program of the FBI, they're, they're just, they just have our back and vice versa. And the partnership was strong. Now you're sitting in a U.S. embassy and U.S. embassies have bosses. They're called ambassadors. Tell us the, about the role of the United States ambassador in terms of what the FBI does uh, in Canada, in an embassy setting, how often do you brief the ambassador? What's that level of uh, coordination and visibility? 
A U.S. ambassador's main role is to promote the prosperity and security of the United States as well, too, and to do that by building diplomatic relations with, uh, with our partners around the world. So the ambassador is really responsible for everything that happens in Canada. He is uh, accountable to the, uh, to the president. So we keep the ambassador appraised of the different uh, operations, issues, challenges, cases uh, that we have going on. You know, we don't brief them on everything because we the volume. Uh, it's it's hard enough for me to keep up with the volume. So we pick those things that are going to be really the most important, or potentially have the most amount of diplomatic uh, challenges and or rub. You know, if if there were a, a fugitive that we wanted in uh, in the United States and they were a Canadian citizen, you know, that's going to cause you know challenges. So those are the types of things that we bring to the ambassador's attention. Uh, we meet weekly with the ambassador and his or her uh, senior uh, staff and brief them up on different things that are going on and vice versa. I get to hear the other things that are happening with the other departments within the embassy. You know, I, I learned a lot about, you know, foreign agriculture and, you know, beef trades, which wouldn't sound like it was interesting to me, but, you know, for my role as the assistant director and the weapons of mass destruction directorate, I was previously tracking the uh, you know African swine fever and outbreaks of that. And that, if it was to get into the United States, could really do billions of dollars worth of damage to our pork industry. Well, the Canadian pork industry is the same. And so learning about the things that they are doing to protect against those type of biological issues really becomes important because it helps educate me uh, on things that may or may not have come to my attention otherwise. So participating with the rest of the senior staff at the embassy uh, just becomes really valuable because I can pick out things that people may not have thought would have been of interest to the FBI, uh, but they are, you know, for example, you know, Arctic security and global warming and, and it's just uh, very, very interesting to everyone learns from uh, the other people. Uh, so we really do a very good job uh, had success in London and in Ottawa. It's it's just as good uh, up there with the the daily interaction with the rest of the State Department and different people assigned from other agencies. You know, it's it's interesting what what you're saying because of uh, the requirement to to really, as they say in the intelligence business, know your domain. And your domain happens to be an entire nation, uh, where the, say the head of a field office would be responsible for truly understanding his or her state, region, territory, you, your territory is Canada, and uh, you've got to have a holistic knowledge of, uh, of what's going on there as it relates to the FBI's interests. And then, you know, it's all about relationships. You can't, it seems like you just can't succeed in your mission without those key partners in the Canadian agencies. Tell us about Canadian law enforcement and intelligence services. Who are they? What do they do? How, how do they perhaps differ than, than our own? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges, and, and it's not a challenge to me because I'm, I'm still sworn to uphold the United States Constitution, and that's very important to me. The Canadians are not interested in the United States Constitution. They have their own charter rights, and they don't always juxtapose perfectly. So there are things that I can do that are constitutional, that may or may not, you know, work in Canada. So that becomes one of the, the biggest challenges of working through the differences in our agencies. We work, for the most part, with the 
their national police forces, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's an agency similar, has similar roles to the FBI in that they do national security cases, but they're also a uniform agency. So we, we don't have a, a major uniform function of policing in the United States. So Their scope is a little bit wider than ours, but they are our main interlocutor for national security. In addition to on my FBI domestic security agency role is CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, is their domestic security agency. So I am a natural partner uh, for CSIS as well up there too. Those are our main partners when it comes to our national security functions and then we deal with every uh, every police agency throughout Canada, from Newfoundland to to BC. Let's pause for just a moment so I can share some product news that you can use. After a long day of work, school, or errands, there's nothing like unwinding with a great movie or series to cap off the night. I certainly have my own favorite shows that help me disconnect from all the news of the day. But you can't do that if you've run out of things to watch. If you want to make sure that your content well doesn't run dry, you need to check out all the captivating exclusives and exciting new releases on Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. With Acorn TV, there's always something new to discover. It has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more. From production to performances, the series you'll find on Acorn TV are exceptional and refreshing because they're cleverly written, visually striking, and feature renowned actors like David Tennant, and Thandi Newton. There's Midsummer Murders, the long-running, much-loved, and highly-anticipated mystery series that returns for brand-new episodes of Season 22 that can only be watched on Acorn TV. Los Angeles Times calls it a must for British TV fans. Detective Chief Barnaby and Detective Sergeant Winter investigate homicides, blackmail, greed, and betrayal in England's most murderous county. Guest stars include Hannah Waddingham from Ted Lasso, Caroline Quentin, and Rachel Sterling. You get thousands of hours of new, enthralling content on Acorn TV for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. I've found Acorn TV to be refreshing, different, high quality, and easy to stream. Try Acorn TV for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code FRANK. But you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's acorn, A-C-O-R-N, dot TV, code FRANK, to get your first 30 days for free. There's so much going on in the world, whether it's stuff you're excited about, like the Cleveland Browns, for example, or stuff you'd rather not think about, like whatever is or is not happening in Washington, D.C. You can't always control the vibes out there, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. If I'm working out or just on a walk, chances are I'm wearing my Raycons. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work, or work out, Raycons are my go-to for on-the-go audio. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever with an improved rubber oil look and feel that's really cool and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. 
These are impressive before you even start listening. You get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. There's pure mode for podcast listening, blues and instrumentals. There's balance mode for rock, heavy rock and metal. There's bass mode for hip-hop, EDM and reggae. There's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, for Bureau Podcast listeners... You can get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash frank. That's buyraycon.com slash frank to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash frank. Now let's get back to our episode guest. So give us a, a glimpse of how often you're interacting with, with the security service, with the RCMP, and with others. Take us through a typical day for you, for your colleagues inside the FBI uh, legal attache offices in Canada. What's, what's the day look like or the week look like? Every day, our assistant legal attaches are on the phone or in meetings over at CSIS and RCMP, sitting down and having those discussions, trying to work through those challenges that, that we encounter where uh, our policies, our constitution and charter rights may, may differ, but we have to get the job done. So it's always trying to find uh, those workarounds. But every day I come in first thing in the morning as I read through all the intelligence around the world and I, I get caught up because there are things that happen in places that Somewhere in Africa, somebody might not think of a Canadian nexus to something, but I may recognize that, you know, the victim of a of some case that happened over there is a Canadian company with some type of U.S. nexus. But you wouldn't necessarily know that if you were the legal attaché assigned over in Pretoria. So I read through all the daily intelligence and try and find out where there might be some type of new uh, U.S. or Canadian nexus uh, that's important to me, and it also gives me the ability to just again be educated on as broad a swath of things that I can so that I can better inform the ambassador and better carry out uh, my mission. But every day I read that intelligence. I work with my ALATs to figure out what challenges we're having uh, with the Canadians and then work on solutions to get us to be able to accomplish our mission. But every day we're meeting with CSIS, RCMP, uh, local police, Toronto Police Service, uh, on the phone in those areas where we don't necessarily have a presence. So out in the Atlantic region of Canada, you know, picking up the phone, you know, at least every other day and just having conversations with, you know, the Halifax police or out in Manitoba, uh, just making sure that they know that the FBI is there and, and willing to assist them and working through any of the challenges that we have. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the size and scope of, of uh, maintaining relationships in an entire nation. And, I recollect as a, a head of a field office during my career, I thought I had a long drive when it was a three-hour ride to visit my farthest uh, part of my territory. What What's it like for you to travel? How often do you travel inside Canada to maintain those relationships? 
And um, did COVID impact your travel even within Canada? It's an interesting question, Frank, because COVID really did have a tremendous impact where each one of our 50 states was a little bit different as far as how they were addressing COVID and what was open and what was closed. Uh, Canada went on a, on a pretty intense lockdown. And uh, for the first time, that border you know, closed uh, in early 2020, and it remains closed until uh, the middle of August when uh, it's opening back up. But that has cut down on, on a tremendous amount of our travel, and interprovisional travel uh, was even restricted. Uh, the, the Atlantic bubble, which consisted of the four provinces in eastern Canada, closed down to the rest of Canada. And uh, it was one particular case where a murder had happened in Texas, and the murder suspect fled and somehow ended up in Nova Scotia and got arrested in Halifax. And the police, the the Texas Rangers needed that evidence that the gentleman who was arrested was wearing. They needed it for some shoe impressions. So I traveled to Halifax driving, but I couldn't drive to the United States because then I would have had to quarantine when I got back to the bubble. So I had to drive around the tip of Maine uh, through Quebec, down through New Brunswick, all the way down to Nova Scotia. It was a 19-hour drive to pick up some evidence. I spent the night, and I drove 19 hours back to Ottawa, and we couldn't ship this evidence because we didn't want it to have to go through customs and potentially ruin the integrity of the chain of custody on that evidence. So I had another assistant legal attache get in the car from Ottawa and drove it all the way to Texas. And uh, that was about 50 hours in a car to collect some evidence in a murder case that was really a, a challenge from COVID and closed borders and the need to quarantine and, and not spread uh, the disease. Wow. Just a, a great example of the impact of COVID on law enforcement work and, and just one example. Now, the, the, the agent who kind of sacrificed to him or herself and did that drive, did they have to, were they, did they have to quarantine before reentering Canada? Originally, when Canada closed the border, there was not an exemption for law enforcement or national security uh, personnel. So it really restricted our ability to, we could cross into the United States. Uh, As American citizens, CBP was never going to turn us away. And uh, that was easy. But coming back into Canada was really a challenge because it wasn't written into their order and counsel for, it was written in for essential workers but it didn't include law enforcement and first responders and national security. It was really for truck drivers and the ability to keep uh, trade and goods uh, flowing across the border. And prior to that, we would have to then come back. When we came back into Canada, it was expected that we would quarantine at home for 14 days. So any little bit of work in the United States would then derail us for 14 days. And we don't have the option to telework. I have three computer systems on my desk. One is top secret, one is secret. And the other is the unclassified network. But the majority of my work is done on classified systems that I, that I can't take home. I have to work on those insecure facilities. So uh, sidelining ourselves for 14 days really wasn't an option. And then the Canadians changed their order and counsel, and it classified us as essential workers and allowed us to go back and forth uh, a little bit more frequently. We were still trying to be respectful and, and keep the spread down. So we, we no unnecessary travel. But again, there were certain times when... You know, evidence was needed for, in this case in Texas, it was needed for a trial that was coming up and wasn't going to be delayed in Texas. So uh, that had to get done. Intra-Canada, I do a lot of travel around to uh, check on my personnel in Toronto, uh, 
uh, in Vancouver. And I spent a lot of time coordinating with the closed border. I have a lot of FBI personnel that are transferring in or out of uh, our Anchorage division and needed to be able to traverse Canada. And with the closed border, uh, it became very difficult, like a lot of military personnel who were transferring up to bases in, in Alaska. So I spent a lot of my time uh, coordinating the travel and then the monitoring them when they traveled through these very remote parts of British Columbia and the Yukon going to Canada. I am responsible for FBI personnel in Canada and uh, had a lot of people driving that route. Uh, it was about a four-day drive to get through Canada just to get into Alaska. And uh, I, I took a personal responsibility to make sure that they safely made it through there without their cars breaking down or, you know, other obstacles that they came through. So a, a lot of just coordinating people's travel uh, over the last couple of months as well, too. Yeah, lots of logistics, um, not fun, but certainly necessary. You know, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the computer systems you've got on your desk, TS, secret, unclassified. Um, I'm reminded to to remind our listeners that Canada is part of what we call the five eyes. Those are the five countries in the world that have each other's back all the time, share in virtually uh, all the, their intelligence with each other, don't spy on each other. It is a rock solid partnership. And it's, uh, you know, for those uh, trying to work through those countries, it's Canada, the UK, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. And uh, I can assure you, it's uh, important to have friends in the world. And, and uh, Brian here is assigned to one of those strongest allies. That That's a good segue into talking about some of the successes you want to share with us about working with one of our strongest partners. Give us uh, an example of work that maybe you're particularly proud of, either where the Canadians assisted us in a matter or whether we uh, assisted them, um, some kind of joint success. What can you tell us? Yeah, there is a lot that goes on in the world of counterterrorism that doesn't really hit the, the front page of the newspaper. Uh, when you talk about um, foreign fighters that are over in uh, Syria, you know, returning to the United States or, or returning to Canada, you know, addressing that challenge of uh, ensuring that somebody who's a, who's a trained uh, ISIS fighter doesn't show up and, and walk around uh, your community with that type of training and that type of allegiance to a, to a terrorist organization. Uh, we work on that quite often, uh, especially uh, with the, the border closures sort of slowed down that work a little bit, but we, we generally do that uh, on a regular basis. So constantly working with CSIS and RCMP to mitigate these threats um, when people are returning is, is probably the, the number one thing that I go to bed at night thinking I've successfully kept Americans safe because if somebody bad returns from overseas and they're in Canada – the ability to traverse that border uh, is is just a little too easy and uncomforting. During COVID, while the border was closed, we had a case where a guy in upstate New York got involved with the wrong crowd in uh, Montreal, and as a as a result, the folks in Montreal decided to go down to upstate New York and kidnap his grandparents and hold them hostage uh, for the for the debt that uh, that he owed them. 
this is with the border closed. They were able to sneak through one of those very porous uh, areas, but uh, working with uh, the Sûreté du Québec, the provincial police of Quebec and uh, Montreal police, uh, were able to successfully resolve that case, uh, get those uh, American citizens, those uh, grandparents back to uh, the United States. But that was, that was a great successful case. And we've just had uh, a variety of different uh, horrific acts that have happened to American citizens over uh, even the time that I've been there. In April 2020, there was the mass shooting over in Nova Scotia that killed a gentleman dressed up as a Royal Canadian Mounted Police and went on a a spree and killed quite a few people. One of those was an American uh, citizen. Uh, The summer before, I had an American citizen killed on the uh, Alaskan Highway with her uh, boyfriend. And then uh, currently, there's a rancher out of Wyoming, a gentleman by the name of Ben Tyner, who went to work on a ranch up in British Columbia and has, uh, has been missing for uh, two years now and just really working with that family uh, and trying to assist uh, the RCMP with any resources or any intelligence that we can give them to the United States just to help them uh, resolve the, those cases. But they're very heartbreaking cases, but they're uh, personally rewarding for me to be able to work on them because I'd be comforted to know that if my child was overseas and ran into uh, a problem or an issue, uh, there'd be somebody there that could help them. And with the border closed, I serve as the, the parent, I serve as the brother, I serve as the father, uh, sometimes for American victims uh, whose family can't come and help them. And I, I'm the only, I'm the last uh, person that's able to show up and help them should they run into trouble or if they've uh, unfortunately been, you know, the victim of a, of a, of a murder, I sort of serve as that surrogate uh, parent, brother for them just to be able to make sure the family gets all the resources that they need and gets the attention they need on their cases. Thanks for, for sharing that kind of example. I think, I, I just don't think the general public understands that when they might be experiencing the most traumatic time of their lives, the, the loss of a loved one, the kidnap or serious assault of a loved one overseas, sometimes, and particularly in this time of COVID and uh, lack of pandemic uh, travel, it's an FBI official that becomes their boots on the ground there, their eyes and ears. And just sharing that with us, that role you play is uh, a reminder that the FBI has a very vast mission and serving uh, American victims and their families is, is a large part of that. It's been a great, insightful discussion. I, as always, have learned some things and I'm sure our listeners have. We're grateful that someone like you is representing We thank you and the men and women of Legal Attaché Ottawa for everything you do to keep us safe. Well, thank you, Frank. I'm I'm honored to be over there. I'm honored to serve the American people uh, overseas. It's, uh, again, sort of a hidden gem, uh, these great assignments, and I've been able to introduce my children to different cultures um, throughout their uh, youth growing up. But there's also, you know, personal sacrifices and challenges that come with it as I just had my oldest daughter just graduated high school, and she went to 11 different schools throughout her education career. Her high school uh, was in three different countries. She went to school in London, Virginia, and then finally finished in Canada. So there is some sacrifice that goes along with service, and uh, 
it's just an honor for me to be able to serve the American people, despite what those uh, sacrifices may be. And uh, I really want to, I, I owe it all to my family, to my spouse and my children. My, my career sounds fan, you know, fantastic. As you mentioned at the beginning, it, it's a uh, very good credentials, uh, but behind me is an outstanding spouse and some outstanding children uh, that really make it possible. Yeah, it's in, it's truly uh, accurate to say that in the FBI, it's the entire family that serves the nation. They all may not realize that when their loved one signs up to become an FBI employee, but it becomes apparent that um, it's a family uh, service and sacrifice. And we thank you and your family for doing that. Brian, take care, be safe, and keep us safe. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to our episode on FBI Canada. Next time, join us as we sit down with the head of all intelligence operations for the FBI, as Assistant Director Ryan Young tells us how the Bureau connects the dots. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.